I invite you to turn in your Bibles to Titus chapter 3. Titus chapter 3, we'll be looking at the last part of this letter, verses 9 through 15. And as is typical of, of letters, there's just a, a closing here with some final instructions, some general encouragement and instructions to um, the recipient of this letter. But in in terms of this being written to Titus, it's also being written to the church. And so there's instruction for everyone. And the way the language he used here in verse 15, all who are with me send greeting to you. Greet those who love us in faith. Grace be with you all. That all there is plural. He's not just talking about Titus. And so as we conclude here, it might be simple. It might be easy to think oh, this is just a kind of a formality. Just wrapping up his letter. Maybe we should focus on summarizing the entire letter to have some substance to talk about. Right? Something really meaty. More important. Well, C.S. Lewis, in one of my favorite essays by him, called The Weight of Glory, says this, It is a serious thing to live in a society of possible gods and goddesses. To remember that the dullest and most uninteresting person you talk to may one day be a creature which, if you saw it now, you would be strongly tempted to worship. Or else a horror and a corruption such as you now meet, if at all, only in a nightmare. It is in the light of these overwhelming possibilities. It is with the awe and circumspection proper to them that we should conduct all of our dealings with one another. All friendships, all loves, all play, all politics. There are no ordinary people. You have never talked to a mere mortal. Wrestle with the names and the relationships that we read about in these closing passages, we should keep this in mind. Right? And just as a reminder, he has been talking about good works. In verse 8 there, he said, The saying is trustworthy, and I want you to insist on these things so that those who have believed in God may be careful to devote themselves to good works. These things are excellent and profitable for people. For all people, it's profitable for you to, as the church, do good works. So good works, I said, do not declare us righteous, but those declared righteous must do good works. There's a exceeding effect there, a relationship there between those who've been declared righteous and the good works that they do in response to Christ's work. So Paul concludes with good works again. But now he's specifically applying them in the context of relationships. And here's how I would summarize it. I would say every relationship is not as critical as the other. That'll be obvious as we read this. Every relationship is not as critical as the other, but every relationship carries gospel significance. So as we think about that in our own lives, we think about the people who are somewhat acquaintances or who, who we like very briefly short periods of time, and those who are family members, those who we see regularly and spend lots of time with. Not every relationship has the same priority or requires the same amount of attention, but every single one of them has gospel significance, has eternal significance. 
And so before we read this passage, let's ask the Lord for his help in understanding it. Heavenly Father, we thank you once again for your word. We thank you that we have your word to open and to hear you speaking to us. We know that every time we open it, that your spirit uses your word to penetrate our hearts, to bring conviction that we might repent, to bring comfort that we might trust and rest in Christ. And so do this work that only you can do. And may you receive all of the glory in it. Give us eyes to see, give us ears to hear, give us hearts to believe and to respond in obedience. In Christ's name we ask it. Amen. I read with me Titus chapter 3 verses 9 through 15. But avoid foolish controversies, genealogies, dissensions, and quarrels about the law, for they are unprofitable and worthless. As for a person who stirs up division, after warning him once and then twice, have nothing more to do with him, knowing that such a person is warped and sinful. He is self-condemned. When I send Artemis or Tychicus to you, do your best to come to me at Nicopolis. For I have decided to spend the winter there. Do your best to speed Zenus, the lawyer, and Apollos on their way. See that they lack nothing. And let our people learn to devote themselves to good works, so as to help cases of urgent need and not be unfruitful. All who are with me send greetings to you. Greet those who love us in the faith. Grace be with you all. Amen. Is God's holy word. Well, he opens here with some instruction about the kind of people that we should avoid, people that should be shunned. Verses nine through eleven. These are all. This is all negative. He's saying avoid the foolish controversies, genealogies, dissensions, and quarrels about the law. Well, how do you avoid those without avoiding the people who bring those into your life? Those foolish controversies and genealogies. For they are unprofitable and worthless. As for a person who stirs up division after warning him once and then twice, have nothing more to do with him. Knowing that such a person is warped and sinful, he is self-condemned. Now this is, there is the, the direction and instruction for the church, but it's also directly instruction to Titus as the leader appointed overseer of that church. To do some of the harsh things, right, of protecting the flock from those who have infiltrated and are causing division and discord. So he tells him, as he closes here, that he shouldn't get sidetracked by foolish discussion. Titus needed to avoid minor debates because they do nothing for himself or for anyone else in the church. The result is a lot of wasted energy. And if you get caught up in these kinds of debates, you're just casting pearls before swine. Right? Divisive people need warnings, followed by rejection if they refuse to listen to those warnings. Before their warped view 
And this is what he says, knowing that such a person is warped and sinful there in verse 11, that word warped is in the perfect tense. It means that it was a, it's a past action that has ongoing significance. They've been warped. They've been introducing their warped theology into the context of the church, and they're continuing to cause division and discord with their warped views. And he's saying you've got to dismiss them before they affect everyone in your church, before they destroy the church. There are exceptions to these warnings. You only have to go back one passage to see not everything is foolish. Not every controversy is foolish. Not everyone who is passionate is divisive. You need to keep that in mind here. Had he said that just all controversies, avoid them, try to be peaceful and loving to everyone, don't ruffle anyone's feathers, you know, tickle their ears. It would have been contradictory to many other instructions that he's given, but namely the, the passage just prior. Right, controversies about central doctrines such as justification. He said there in verse 7, so that being justified by his grace, we might become heirs according to the hope of eternal life. If someone has a faulty view of justification, that's the type of controversy you need to invest all of your energy into. All of your time should be devoted to that, Titus. Don't get distracted by foolish things, by genealogies, by minor debates. Don't get distracted by the things that your friends are posting on Facebook, Titus. Right? He's Foolish debates. Let us, let us debate our core beliefs with passion and care a bit less about the rest. That's what he's saying here. Have some core truths that you hold very firmly to. And he's reiterated those core truths throughout this letter. letter. But as he's concluding, he's saying, don't get yourself caught up in some of these other things that they're trying to stir up in your midst. And we can all admit that we probably have things that we care too much about. Issues with very little eternal significance that we allow to weigh heavy upon our minds, even to disrupt unity in our homes, in our workplaces, with our neighbors. So back then it was genealogies or minute man-made laws that really ultimately uh, were treated as, as of gospel importance in their day and age, at least according to some. But today, it could look like any number of things, right? Political debates, debates among our friends in contexts and environments that don't promote healthy discourse. You don't have to pursue every relationship. That's where he begins here. You don't have to pursue every relationship. Some friends will only hinder relational growth. And so those are significant relationships because they could be hindering you from entering into a relationship that will truly equip you and encourage you and prepare you for the work God's called you to. And so it has eternal significance. But it doesn't mean it deserves your time and attention. Some relationships need to end. And then Paul, Paul shifts from that negative view to positive, thinking of those who have had a positive impact in his ministry. 
in verses 12 and 13, when I send Artemis or Tychicus to you, do your best to come to me at Nicopolis, for I have decided to spend the winter there. Do your best to speed Zenos, the lawyer, and Apollos on their way. See that they lack nothing. Here he's talking about partners in the gospel ministry. Partnerships which Paul heavily relied upon. Every missionary journey he went on. And so Paul here is talking about his great desire to see Titus. This is the partner he wants to fellowship with. He wants to commune with. And he says he's going to send either Artemis or Tychicus to him so that Titus could then leave Crete and, and still have an authority figure there present on the island. And once Artemis or Tychicus arrives, then Titus would be free to leave and join Paul in Nicopolis, where they would be spending, where Paul was planning on spending the winter. And so he says Titus should do his best to come to come to him quickly. The language there of doing your best to come, and then in the very next verse of eagerly speeding along, says do your best to speed Zenus the lawyer and a speed on their way. That there's a play on words there because do your best and and speed. The English doesn't show the reflection of the relationship, but it's very similar uh, words there. Uh, it, it would be like saying, do your best to come quickly and then be eager to send, quickly send along Zenos and Apollos, uh, who were probably the ones who delivered this letter to Titus. So Zenos and Apollos, we don't really have any mention of Zenos other than here. Apollos is mentioned in other places, really similar to Artemis and, and Tychicus, and this is the only time we hear of Tychicus, but Artemis is mentioned in several places. So, but all of these figures were clearly partners in ministry. Right? And so as Zenos and Apollos deliver the letter to Titus, Titus is to ensure that they're well supplied so that they can carry on with the next task that Paul had assigned to them. Right? So Paul had entrusted them with a mission and he wants to encourage Titus to care for them. See that they lack nothing. Of course, he's referring to feed him, show hospitality to these men, and then send them on their way speedily. They have a work to do. And, and this is something we should consider here. Partnerships in ministry are critical. For any successful ministry relies upon partnerships. Paul here depended upon his friends physically and emotionally. Right? He, he was eager to have Titus come back into to be restored in that fellowship with him face to face, to enjoy his company. There was an emotional support that he received from Titus's presence. And then there was just some physical things that he needed him to do and to accomplish. And these partnerships are just as important on a corporate level, right, with ministries and churches coordinating together, those that are like-minded in ministry, as, as much as it is important for you individually to have relationships with others, partnerships in ministry, those rely upon, and you're united to one another in that way, so that you bear one another's burdens. Right? And so I do think that that partnerships are critical, and they do take time and effort to develop. They require energy. But notice they oftentimes occur, these relationships develop in the midst of ministry. Working side by side. 
Right? The best relationships, the strongest ones are forged there on the front lines where we serve alongside one another, doing the work that God's called us to. So it's not like we need to take this time to really develop the relationship and then go and do the work. We do the work and we invite others to come. We invite them to join us and we rely upon them. And so God has given us this Catholic, this universal church. Let's, let's not lose that word Catholic. It, it, it originally meant universal. The church across regions wasn't just a reference to Rome, the Roman Catholic Church. It, it's the church across every region, around the globe, and throughout time, across ages. God has given us the church universal as a resource to carry out this great commission that he's given us. And so we should seek partnerships with people who have received that same mission. And there may be some differences among us, personality-wise, or even uh, in, in practice. But we can partner with one another to carry out this mission that we've received. That doesn't mean we should partner with everyone. But, but the church, the body of Christ, is much broader than this local gathering or even in our denomination. Well, he goes on from mentioning those that had an important role in his ministry, to mention those who were in a critical partnership with him, to mentioning those who were in a great sense of need, those who had were in a place of desperation, a place of needing support. Look at verse 14. And let, let our people learn to devote themselves to good works so as to help cases of urgent need. There's that word again, good works. And how would they carry out those good works? By helping cases of urgent need and not to be unfruitful. All right, so this is the third use of that phrase, good works. We saw it in verse 1. Remind them to be submissive to rulers and authorities, to be obedient, to be ready for every good work. We already read verse 8 where we said that we, they were to devote themselves to good works. And now we see it again in verse 14. Let them devote themselves to good works so as to help cases of urgent need. The, the emphasis, the repetition here upon good works for the, for the people on Crete, it reveals the lack of fruit that had been evident. And he repeats it over and over for a reason. Because they hadn't gotten it yet. And so because of their lack of fruit here, Paul is once again telling Titus, remind them of this need, especially as Titus leaves them, replaces them with someone else. There's going to be a need for this urgent care to be provided to those who are in need of support. All right, you'll need to notice those with urgent needs and then devote yourselves to providing the care that they need, whatever that might be. Uh, referring to... Christian vocation, Martin Luther wrote, God does not need your good works, but your neighbor does. God doesn't need your good works, but your neighbor does. Absolutely true. And it's, and it's in regard to the vocation of the Christian, the Christian calling, at the call of the people of God to do their work for God. And it's not saying that that it's only referring to those who are in places of ministry, but it's saying for the 
cobbler, as Martin Luther would often refer to. One who makes shoes. What's his job? How does he glorify God? By making the best shoes he can. That Lord in glory to God. By doing the work as if he's doing it for the Lord. As if he's serving the Lord in his calling. Because it's providing for his neighbor in that way. And it's not like that shoe's going to do anything for God. But it's a good work to help and support your neighbor. And so we shouldn't overcomplicate what our support for our neighbor looks like. And oftentimes we do. We overemphasize the need and the desperate situation of the, of the world. And we say, we're going to do everything we can. We're going to put all of our resources into supporting and solving this problem. Right? And it distracts the church from the call of gospel proclamation. And so we turn the church into a soup kitchen, a worthy endeavor, but not what we're called to be. We shouldn't overcomplicate our support, but we shouldn't minimize its importance either. As if they're not necessary. It's not, it's not important what goes on outside of these walls. The suffering and, or even the support that's needed within these walls. We have people right next to us today that are hurting and suffering, who need encouragement and support. In fact, that's our greater responsibility, but it goes beyond that. To reach out into the community. Rosaria Butterfield, I've been reading her book called uh, The Gospel Comes with a House Key. She says this, radically ordinary hospitality is this. Using your Christian home in a daily way that seeks to make strangers, neighbors, and neighbors family of God. Radically ordinary hospitality. It's a high calling. And yet we see this idea of hospitality throughout Scripture. Using your Christian home in a daily way that seeks to make strangers, neighbors, and neighbors the family of God. So Christians are to offer support beyond the walls of the church to those who are in need. And we do so because it has gospel significance. And those are oftentimes when you find your, who your true friends are, those who really care, right? when you face a crisis in your life, when you face a trial, those who check in on you, those who offer help, reveal their concern for you. And sometimes the most painful experience is the lack of support you receive when you're in that state of crisis. When those who you most expect to provide support have checked out. Right? They reveal their selfishness. But the church has an opportunity to be a light in those times of crisis. And we of all people should be prepared, we should be equipped to provide that kind of support when it's needed with whatever resources God has given us. Well, he concludes here, Paul shifts from those who have a desperate need to everyone within the church. He's really shifting from the people out there, those, those who need our good works, our neighbors, and he's coming back into the church and he's saying, greet everyone. Greet all of my brothers and sisters. All who are with me send greetings to you. Greet those who love us in the faith. He's qualifying this greeting. It's those who are in the faith. 
Grace be with you all. And here's where I would say we, we shouldn't gloss so quickly over these words. Right, greetings are critical. And Paul wanted to acknowledge those on Crete who were connected to him by virtue of their common faith. If you look at verse 4 of chapter 1, go back. He says, to Titus, my true child in a common faith. Grace and peace from God the Father in Christ Jesus our Savior. He opens with grace. He opens with a greeting to those in the faith, those who share a common faith there, specifically Titus there. But then he's closing here with that same kind of greeting. Greet those who love us in the faith. Because of their union with Christ, Paul had a brotherly affection for those in the church. And it heightened his desire to act with them. As he got to know them and, and he had a, you know, a loss of fellowship with them because of the journey he was on, the mission God had given him, he desired them to come or he desired to return. He talks about returning to places in his letters all the time. Kind of returning and, and being encouraged and being a mutual encouragement to them. He desired fellowship. He desired interaction with the people of God. It's more than just getting a high five on a Sunday morning. It's a longing to gather for worship and for fellowship. The Puritans called Sunday the market day of the soul. You know, it was what happened in the marketplace. You, you, you got everything you needed. You interacted with people. You, you did everything there on market day. But now he says, no, on Sunday, the, the Puritans would say, that is the market day for your soul. Where, where you feed upon Christ, where you receive from him the strength and encouragement that you need to persevere. And the equipping that you need to be a support to those in need. Thomas Watson said, when the falling dust of the world has clogged the wills of our affections, that they can scarce move towards God, the Sabbath comes and oils the wills of our affections that they move, and they move swiftly on. Right? When you grow cold, when, when your Bible gets dusty, when your heart is dry, the Sabbath has been given to you as a gift to restore you. And if, if that's true, then we shouldn't be filled with reluctance to get up on Sunday morning. Nor should we make a speedy exit right after the benediction. I think this is calling us to something more. Don't be so quick. To find your seat as soon as you arrive, which means you might need to arrive early. And I'm going to try not to look at anyone in particular. Nor should you be so quick to depart after the service, which means you might need to interact with people afterwards. And these are, these are important aspects of how God is strengthening and equipping you and others who depend upon you. We are the body of Christ. We all have a role to play. 
And so greetings are important. You should relish them. Take advantage of every opportunity we have to greet one another. So Paul concludes in the way he opened with grace. He refers to grace that accompanies every believer. In fact, Paul speaks of grace in the first and last chapter of every single New Testament letter that he wrote. This is sort of his, his key word, the theme of his life. The grace that comes through Jesus Christ, who teaches him to apply every one of the way that things that we've just talked about in terms of our relationship with others. Right, what do we learn from the grace of Christ in the way that he shunned people? Well, he rebuked very fiercely and harshly the Pharisees and the scribes and those who were bringing great discord in the church and teaching false things, elevating the man-made laws over God's law, over God's rule. He taught them how to seek those who are humble and repentant and to provide for those who are needy, leaving the 99 in search of the one who's, who's lost. And greeting those sheep who hear his voice. Jesus Christ is our example in all of this. And it's because of our relationship with him, because of our union with him, that we're enabled by his spirit to do what he's called us to do here. In the context of the church, as well as in the context of our community. So every relationship is not as critical as the other. But every relationship carries gospel significance. The more we can reflect upon that and think about that in every encounter we face today, tomorrow, the rest of this week, the more we reflect upon that, the more glory we bring to God. And so let us ask God's help to remember that. Heavenly Father, we do thank you for this encouragement.